Hello, this is Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club series. Today, the OJC meets Professor Dorothy Keefe, CEO of Cancer Australia. Dorothy shares a passionate and warm chat with Dr. Craig Underhill. They discuss optimal care pathways, COVID-19, and digitizing and improving healthcare systems. Dorothy candidly discusses why she believes the most important thing we can do is to improve outcomes for Indigenous people with cancer, and why she hopes her legacy will be making Cancer Australia deliver on its promise to be a thought leader and become an agile, outward-facing, go-to organisation that everyone knows is there to help. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter. You'll see a link on oncologynews.com.au. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Dorothy Keefe onto the Oncology Podcast. Thank you, Dorothy, for coming on the, the program. We're going to talk a little bit about optimal care pathways and review a paper, and then we'll have a little bit of a discussion about some other issues, never waste an opportunity. We're seeing we have Dorothy on the show. So Dorothy is a clinical professor at the University of Adelaide, and she's a recent CEO of Cancer Australia. So thank you very much, Dorothy. Thank you very much for having me, Craig. I'm delighted. I think this is probably my favourite way of doing Journal Club. Fantastic. Very 2020, as it turns out. Indeed. So tonight we're going to be looking at a paper by Rachel Bergen entitled Concordance Between Optimal Care Pathways and Colorectal Cancer, Identifying Opportunities to Improve Quality and Reduce Disparities, published in uh, June in the Journal of Evaluation in Clinical Practice. So, Dorothy, would you like to outline this paper for us? Remembering people can click on the link to get more information and then your thoughts about it. I think, although this is a descriptive paper, I think it's very useful because it's beginning the journey of showing whether optimal care pathways are actually working in Australia. And I think the idea was this is a survey that was done before the optimal care pathway was actually introduced, looking at whether people were complying with the sorts of care that the optimal care pathway would encourage. So as you know, optimal care pathways are designed for the clinicians and the patients so that everybody knows what should be done in the best, you know, in the best management of a particular tumor. And there are now many of these optimal care pathways for uh, many of the common cancers, some of the rarer cancers, and also the extra one that is looking at the whole journey from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective. And what it enables you to do is question whether we in Australia are able and possibly willing to abide by the guidance in this pathway. And it was clear from looking at at what happened before the colorectal one was introduced that it was very patchy. There were certain things that people were just not doing and certain things that people were quite willing to do. 
mean, for example, GPs didn't seem very excited about doing a digital rectal examination on a patient that might have colorectal cancer. So it gives us a very good baseline and it enables us then to hold the system to account about the best care and whether we are able to deliver that best care. So it's actually a good tool for the patients to say, you know, this is the pe- this is the sort of care I should be having. A joined up patient pathway from early diagnosis right through to survivorship or palliative care. And it also gives the clinical staff the ability to say to their health service administrators, well, we need to be giving this sort of care and we're unable to, so we would like you to to fix that. And then, of course, there have been other papers that have come out since that have shown that if you do align the care with the pathway, you have better outcomes. So there is a, a paper that I'll have to send you the link for that shows if you follow the colorectal cancer pathway, you have better outcomes. So I think this is all just really good ways of enhancing the delivery of care and comes back to the fact that we know that if we just do the things that we already know we need to do, we'll have better outcomes. So this paper was basically, as you say, some baseline data was a cross-sectional survey done between 2012 and 2014. So it'd be interesting to see if that's now changed over time. But one of the things I picked up with my regional hat on was it was interesting that patients from rural areas were significantly less likely to receive a colonoscopy within four weeks compared to urban. Yes. And they were they were more likely to have more GP interventions before they got referred for diagnostic care. So it does show that it's likely that some of the variation that's occurring across the country is not good for patients. And that's what we're trying to reduce. We're always trying to reduce the unnecessary variation. And we know that in many cancers, the outcomes for rural and remote patients are less good than they are for metropolitan patients. So I presume the other paper you referred to is the Luke to Marvelda paper alignment with indices of a care pathway associated with improved survival. That's the one. That's another paper we've considered reviewing on this show. So we will um, put that link up for people to look at. So it is interesting. So they have some evidence that if the more closely aligned you are to the pathway, the better the outcome. So that's probably one of the first demonstrations of perhaps the merit of these OCPs. That's exactly right. But the piece that that misses is whether introducing them has increased the alignment. So if you can show that there was poor alignment before we, they were introduced, that if you're aligned, you have better outcomes, then you need to also show that the uptake is increasing. And that is something that we haven't yet been able to demonstrate, although there have been pilot programs in all states aimed at implementing the optimal care pathways. So one of the issues for me in working with the OCPs is the difficulties about real-time data and collecting the data, analysing the data and in a timely way and giving feedback to clinicians. So what do you think we can do to resolve that issue? Craig, that's a really big issue in Australia and it's patchy between the states. So there are some states that can have data within three or four months of a patient undergoing a procedure or having a diagnosis, and there are states where it might be two years. Now, that's clearly not acceptable. And I think most of the cancer workforce has been advocating for quite a long time for real-time data. And I think we have to use this COVID-19 pandemic crisis, just to segue into that, 
in order to drive more timely data. I think it's absolutely clear that we should have the data in real time. And it is not impossible. The Dutch, for example, were already showing in March that there had been a reduction in cancer diagnoses due to the coronavirus pandemic. We could at that point estimate that there would be uh, reductions in cancer diagnoses, but we couldn't tell you how big they were. And we can't give you a national figure about that yet. So I think that this is an area where we need to be advocating with the data collection bodies, the cancer registries, the AIHW, in order to get those data in a more timely manner. Yeah, we've had recent experience with the Cancer Council in Victoria where it takes them about 18 months to clean the data for how many patients were put on a clinical trial in Victoria in a year. So, you know, that kind of time delay is really so last century. Indeed. I think that New South Wales... Queensland and to a certain extent WA are ahead of the curve within Australia. I think, you know, on the on the plus side, we do know that we have some of the best outcomes in the world for cancer. We know that from longevity and we know that from the data that we do get, it will be a bit late. And there are some other countries that have fabulous data but don't have our fabulous outcomes. So I think what we what we're striving for is is having both. Because you can't reduce unnecessary variation if you can't demonstrate to people that it exists. Yeah, and and to me, it's addressing those pockets of disparity, bringing them up to the average would be where we need to invest to um, to really make the next step in improvement in survival outcomes in Australia, which segues into, I guess, the next question. You mentioned the, the optimal care pathway in the Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island population, which was published 2019, I think, for the first time. So how do you think that's going to fit into the landscape and the likely impacts of that? Well, I think this is a really important piece of work because, as you know, um, it's all very well having the best outcomes for cancer in the world as long as everybody has them. And in Australia, the gap in cancer outcomes is actually widening not getting narrower. And it's widening in two ways. It's widening because we're improving the outcomes for non-Indigenous people and Indigenous people are getting more cancer and it's at a later stage and so they're doing worse. So having an OCP that focuses on enabling Indigenous people to achieve the good outcomes that everyone else achieves is absolutely vital. Uh, I see it as, you know, the most important thing that we can do is to improve outcomes for Indigenous people with cancer. And that involves changing the way the whole health system interacts with and communicates with our Indigenous peoples, because we know what we need to do, but we're failing to actually be able to deliver it. So yes, I think this is extremely important. And in fact, Cancer Australia has developed an implementation guide and toolkit for the optimal care pathway that I think might have just sneaked onto our website recently as a soft uh, launch, but that we will be launching more formally later in the year, that has lots of tools available to help health services to actually use this OCP optimally. My, My daughter, eldest daughter, is a second year university student studying social work and she lectures me now on social determinants of health and so in this space I think you know it's not just what we do in cancer is it it's really all about that socioeconomic disparity the uh, voice to parliament and all of those issues that we need to to address. 
Look, I think you're absolutely right. The social determinants of health are a really big problem. And I think the intergenerational impact of the social determinants of health is important. And I've been looking at if fixing the social determinants of health is not easy, but the question is whether it's sufficient to close the gap or whether there's something else there that we haven't looked at or haven't considered. I came across the term social epigenomics recently. It's a fascinating topic. It's looking at the epigenomic and epigenetic changes that occurred when Europeans arrived in Australia in the indigenous population. And we can do all we like, but if there are ongoing epigenomic and epigenetic changes, we need to work out a way to undo those, to change them back. And I, you know, I don't know how we do that yet, but I think this is an area that we need to look at. The other thing that we need to do is look at what we're calling disadvantage-driven policy setting. So just for an example, another piece of work that we're doing is we're looking at a roadmap for pancreatic cancer over the next five years because the outcome for pancreatic cancer in Australia is appalling. At the moment, it's so bad that there's no gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous outcomes. So I imagine, and I don't think I'm just imagining it, I think the evidence would suggest that if we improve the outcomes of people with pancreatic cancer by making the journey better, doing all the things we already know to do, joining up all the gaps, we will create a gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous outcomes that doesn't currently exist. And we can't do that in 2020. What we have to do, we have to say, how do we raise survival rates in pancreatic cancer for everybody? I haven't got an answer yet, but Uh, uh, uh. that's the way we need to be thinking. So how long have you been in the role as CEO of Cancer Australia now, Dorothy? I remember celebrating with you. We were doing uh, some work in Wollongong when you found out. So we had a glass of champagne at a beautiful waterside restaurant, which now seems like some kind of ancient epoch if you live in Victoria. So how long have you been there and has there been any surprises in taking over the role? Well, thank you, Craig. Yes, I do remember that uh, fateful day uh, very fondly. And I've now been in the role for over 12 months. So I'm no longer the new CEO. I'm uh, I'm the CEO. I'm very, very settled. And um, obviously, there are always surprises, not many of which I can share with you, obviously. But um, I think I think that the biggest surprise has actually been the pandemic. You know, I, I um I took up the role um, in Sydney as a fly-in, fly-out uh, worker from Adelaide and happily flew in and out every week until late March. And then suddenly, of course, that becomes impossible. Um, and it's been a very, as you would know, it's been a very strange last few months. Uh, it's, cha- it's turned everything on its head. And we've had to, like everybody else, look at what we do, look at how we do it, and see where we can add value as an agency in this space. Yep. So COVID aside, what do you see as the priorities for cancer care in Australia in the next few years? Well, as, as you probably will gather from, from our earlier discussion, clearly closing the gap is the most important thing to me, followed by this disadvantage-driven strategy to enable justice in healthcare outcomes. I think that cancer in the elderly or the ageing is really an increasing problem because, as we know, cancer is largely a disease of ageing and the population is 
living longer and we have more older patients with cancer and we're not meeting all of their needs as well as we should be. So that's another area in which we're going to be producing some work. I think another area that fascinates me is the impact of the new treatments for cancer on contemporary models of care. We do still fall back into the habit of running our cancer centres in the way we ran them when standard chemotherapy was the sort of standard medical oncological tool. And maybe when when multiple fractions of radiotherapy, you know, were, were the norm. And with the introduction of immunotherapy, the other some of the targeted therapies and CAR T therapy, the toxicities of the treatment have changed dramatically. And the the sort of percentages of people who get them, you know, it, it's very difficult when immunotherapy is so marvelous, but it can kill you. That's quite a big range of options, you know, cure to kill across the whole spectrum. And so I think we really do need to do some work around changing the models of care in our cancer services. And then, of course, there are there are the sort of modern technological things like the digitalization of healthcare, which I think is really important, and the increase in the patient self-management and advocacy. So there's quite a lot to keep us occupied, I think. Yeah. So I'm the Minister for Health and I'm going to let you pick two things to work on. So what would your top two be, do you think? They would be closing the gap yeah. and modernising our healthcare systems to make sure we're using all the technologies in order to drive value-based, values-based healthcare. Right. So we had a conversation on that night 12 months ago. I didn't realise so long ago. For some reason, we spoke about legacies. Mm-hmm. That is a bit early in your reign to be asking you that, I guess, but these things do take years sometimes to have an impact. So what do you hope your legacy might be? So, yes, of course, I I don't intend to leave a legacy for many years to come because I don't intend to go anywhere for many years to come. And I do remember you're asking that question thinking, oh, my goodness, how am I going to answer that? I think I want to be seen to have made Cancer Australia deliver on its promise. Cancer Australia has always been a a really highly valued, evidence-based, trusted organisation. But I think that its role in national leadership in cancer care needs to be more recognised by everybody. So I want to see the organisation as an outward-facing, agile, go-to organisation that everybody knows is there to help. One of the things I think is really key is that we become a thought leader, not just an agency that that gathers together other people's work and produces wonderful guidelines and wonderful information for patients and all those things. I think we need to be driving the agenda and I think we need to be leading. And I think that the COVID pandemic gave us an opportunity to demonstrate that. You know, traditionally, the work that we do takes quite a long time because of all the the evidence that needs to be reviewed and the work that needs to go into it. But, you know, when COVID came along, you don't have lots of time. You have to be really speedy in order to do something that's worthwhile. And that piece of work that we did in the in the conceptual framework for managing cancer during a pandemic was something that only we could do because we're the only we, you know, we're the agency. We had that national view looking at the whole of the journey in every sort of cancer treatment and patient impact and research impact. We have an opportunity to operate where other individual health systems or or cancer centres don't. And and we have to find those areas where we can operate and lead the thought in those areas. Yeah. And to a certain extent, you know, that was the purpose of this afternoon again, to bring people together and drive some useful cancer leadership. 
That's right. So for the benefit of the listeners, we had a workshop. It was very 2020. It was on Zoom with 31 participants, uh, a workshop on really getting ahead of the curve in the post-COVID space and starting to think about systems change that we've that we're implementing at the moment and implementing that into the post-COVID future. Dorothy, what were you sort of the main takeaway things from today? What what were the things of most interest or the things again that could have been most surprising? I was really impressed and delighted that so many people that we invited came. So you know you, you get a good idea of, of how useful what you're proposing is by the responses you get, by the speed of the responses and the percentage you accept. So there's obviously enthusiasm for learning from the pandemic and using it to improve cancer care and cancer outcomes for Australians. It was obvious that the patient voice was, you know, as we all know, is really important and and teaches us things that we don't necessarily know. I think with the patient at the centre, there was a very there was a moment at the end where we we managed to see that there are two groups of patients that we need to think about here. There are the patients that we already know have cancer, who are our current patients and our past patients, the cancer survivors, the people on treatment now. But there is a group of patients that we don't know yet has cancer whose cancer diagnosis has been affected by the pandemic and they are going to have a different journey from the one the patients who already know they have cancer are going to have and we need to work in that space. So there's two different spaces we need to work in. We obviously, you know, to use the cliches, we nobody wants to waste this crisis. Everyone wants to take the lessons from the crisis and use them to improve outcomes. Just to use a couple of you know examples, the, the big examples are things like telehealth, where we need to make sure that we optimize telehealth to make it work for the patient, not just for the clinician. It was clear that, that the views from the clinicians and the patients are slightly different about the use of telehealth, the value of telehealth, and whether it's video or phone, um, and how that interacts with face-to-face meetings. It has some absolutely fantastic opportunities, but it has some downsides that we need to be aware of. I think the whole hypofractionation story in uh, radiation oncology is really interesting. The incentives are all set to give as many fractions as you possibly can, whereas the evidence is beginning to show that fewer fractions of a larger size can be just as beneficial and no more toxic. So we need to make sure that the settings are right to enable that to happen or in fact, it's happened during the crisis to stop it from going back, you know, because if you're being patient-centered, the patient should come to the hospital or the health service the lowest number of times possible, consistent with excellent care. We need to work on both of those. And I think the digitalization, the use of technology, is an opportunity for us to take a, a giant leap forward in, in terms of digitalization and make sure we don't we don't lose that. Yeah. So in summary, it reinforces the fact that if we all work together, we get better outcomes. You know, we had patient, clinician and health service administrators at that meeting, and that was a fantastic combination. Yeah, working mostly in Victoria, one of the things that I've found in in this crisis is people working together and we formed a new network in Victoria called the Victorian COVID Cancer Network and it's been fantastic. There's a task force and there's a directors group and we meet currently weekly because of the second pandemic surge in Victoria but it really feel that 
you know, everybody's equal around the table, everybody's working really hard to share resources and get rapidly get some systems level changes in place to manage not just the pandemic, but the the post-pandemic expected uptick in, in cancer diagnosis. So it's been uh, hard work, but it's been really gratifying. And I think that's where the power of Cancer Australia to set, set up forums like that nationally and not just at a state level because the issues are all the same essentially with different local flavors so it's an interesting time for us all to be collaborating you mentioned hyperfractionation we reviewed a paper on the recent episode of the podcast that people can listen to we're going to do another episode on that and get a radiation oncologist perspective on things Telehealth is another obvious one, which we have a feature coming up on. Look, I think I think you're right, Craig. I think um, the really important things that have happened have been the collaborations, and and Victoria is leading the country in that. I think New South Wales also has a community of practice where you know eighty or ninety people apparently turn up regularly for their calls. Each state has done fantastic work, but I believe in there being a, a role for a national cancer agency because we need to learn all of the good things and how to actually implement them and to get rid of all of the bad things in cancer in general on a daily basis, let alone when there's a pandemic on. So I think it's a really important thing that you're doing in Victoria. I think it's really excellent. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks to the VCCC and the MPCCC who have been collaborating on that and Victoria for auspicing it. So it's been absolute pleasure chatting to you, Dorothy. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. We look forward to your feedback on the episodes and um, perhaps coming again on the show in the future and we'll talk a bit more about some of those um, important issues. I hope you can achieve that legacy of making Cancer Australia a truly influential national agency. Thanks very much, Greg. It's been an absolute pleasure and, of course, always happy to come and talk about Um, some of the exciting things happening. Thank you. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.